Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And this week we're continuing the reading of Joshua Slocum sailing alone around the world, and we're on chapter 19. It was about noon when the spray came to anchor off Jamestown, and all hands at once went ashore to pay respects to His Excellency, the Governor of the Island, Sir R. A. Sterndale. His Excellency, when I landed, remarked that it was not often nowadays that a circumnavigator came his way, and he cordially welcomed me and arranged that I should tell about the voyage, first at Garden Hall to the people of Jamestown, and then at Plantation House, the Governor's residence, which is in the hills a mile or two back, to His Excellency and the officers of the garrison and their friends. Mr. Poole, our worthy counsel, introduced me at the castle and in the course of his remarks asserted that the sea serpent was a Yankee. Most royally was the crew of the spray entertained by the governor. I remained at Plantation House a couple of days and one of the rooms in the mansion called the West Room being haunted, the butler, by command of His Excellency, put me up in that like a prince. Indeed, to make sure that no mistake had been made, His Excellency came later to see that I was in the right room and to tell me all about the ghosts he had seen or heard of. He had discovered all but one, and wishing me pleasant dreams, he hoped I might have the honour of a visit from the unknown one of the West Room. For the rest of the chilly night, I kept the candle burning and often looked from under the blankets, thinking that maybe I should meet the great Napoleon face to face, but I saw only furniture and the horseshoe that was nailed above the door opposite my bed. St Helena has always been an island of tragedies, tragedies that have been lost sight of in wailing over the Corsican. On the second day of my visit, the governor took me by the carriage road through the turns over the island. At one point of our journey, the road, in winding around spurs and ravines, formed a perfect W with a distance of a few rods. The roads, though tortuous and steep, were fairly good, and I was struck with the amount of labour it must have cost to build them. The air on the heights was cool and bracing. It is said that, since hanging for trivial offences went out of fashion, no one has died there, except from falling over the cliffs in old age, or from being crushed by stones rolling on them from the steep mountains. Witches at one time were persistent at St Helena, as with us in America in the days of Cotton Mather. At the present day, crime is rare in the island. While I was there, Governor Sterndale, in token of the fact that not one criminal case had come to court within the year, was presented with a pair of white gloves by the officers of justice. Returning from the governor's house to Jamestown, I drove with Mr. Clark, a countryman of mine, to Longwood, the home of Napoleon. Monsieur Moriot, French consular agent in charge, keeps the place respectable and the buildings in good repair. His family at Longwood, consisting of wife and grown daughters, are natives of courtly and refined manners and spend here days, months and years of contentment, though they have never seen the world beyond the horizon of St Helena. On the 20th of April, the spray was again ready for sea. Before going on board, I took luncheon with the governor and his family at the castle. Lady Sterndale had sent a large fruit cake early in the morning from Plantation House to be taken along on the voyage. It was a great high decker, and I ate sparingly of it, as I thought, but it did not keep as long as I hoped it would. I ate the last of it along with my first cup of coffee at Antigua, West Indies, which, after all, was quite a record. 
the one my own sister had made me at the little island in the Bay of Fundy, at the first of the voyage, kept about the same length of time, namely 42 days. After luncheon, a royal mail was made up for ascension, the island next on my way. Then Mr. Poole and his daughter paid the spray a farewell visit, bringing me a basket of fruit. It was late in the evening before the anchor was up and I bore off to the west, loath to leave my new friends, but fresh winds filled the sloop sails once more and I watched the beacon light at Plantation House, the governor's parting signal for the spray, till the island faded in the darkness astern and I became one with the night and by midnight the light itself had disappeared below the horizon. When morning came, there was no land in sight, but the day went on the same as days before, save for one small incident. Governor Sterndale had given me a bag of coffee in the husk, and Clark, the American, in an evil moment, had put a goat on board to butt the sack and hustle the coffee beans out of the pods. He urged that the animal, besides being useful, would be as companionable as a dog. I soon found that my sailing companion, this sort of dog with horns, had to be tied up entirely. The mistake I made was that I did not chain him to the mast instead of tying him with my grass ropes less securely, and this I learned to my cost. Except for the first day before the beast had got his sea legs on, I had no peace of mind. After that, actuated by a spirit born maybe of his pasturage, this incarnation of evil threatened to devour everything from flying jib to stern davits. He was the worst pirate I met on the whole voyage. He began depredations by eating my chart of the West Indies in the cabin one day while I was about my work forward, thinking that the critter was securely tied on deck by the pumps. Alas, there was not a rope in the sloop proof against the goat's awful teeth. It was clear from the very first that I was having no luck with animals on board. There was the tree crab from the Keeling Islands. No sooner had it got a claw through its prison box than my sea jacket, hanging within reach, was torn to ribbons. Encouraged by this success, it smashed the box open and escaped into my cabin, tearing up things generally and finally threatening my life in the dark. I had hoped to bring the creature home alive, but this did not prove feasible. Next, the goat devoured my straw hat, and so when I arrived in port, I had nothing to wear ashore on my head. This last unkind stroke decided his fate. On the 27th of April, the spray arrived at Ascension, which is garrisoned by a man-of-war crew, and the boatswain of the island came on board. As he stepped out of his boat, the mutinous goat climbed into it and defied boatswain and crew. I hired them to land the wretch at once, which they were only too willing to do, and there he fell into the hands of a most excellent Scotchman with the chances that he would never get away. I was destined to sail once more into the depths of solitude, but these experiences had no bad effect upon me. On the contrary, a spirit of charity and even benevolence grew stronger in my nature through the meditations of these supreme hours on the sea. In the loneliness of the dreary country about Cape Horn, I found myself in no mood to make one life less in the world except in self-defence, and as I sailed, this trait of the hermit character grew till the mention of killing food animals was revolting to me. However well I may have enjoyed a chicken stew afterward at Samoa, a new self rebelled at the thought suggested there of carrying chickens to be slain for my table on the voyage, 
and Mrs. Stevenson, hearing my protest, agree with me that to kill the companions of my voyage and eat them would be indeed next to murder and cannibalism. As to pet animals, there was no room for a noble large dog on the spray on so long a voyage, and a small cur was for many years associated in my mind with hydrophobia. I witnessed once the death of a sterling young German from that dreadful disease, and about the same time heard of the death also by hydrophobia of the young gentleman who had just written a line of insurance in his company's books for me. I have seen the whole crew of a ship scamper up the rigging to avoid a dog racing about the decks in a fit. It would never do, I thought, for the crew of the spray to take a canine risk with these just prejudices indelibly stamped on my mind. I have, I am afraid, answered impatiently too often the query, didn't you have a dog? With, I and the dog wouldn't have been very long in the same boat in any sense. A cat would have been a harmless animal, I dare say, but there was nothing for Puss to do on board, and she is an unsociable animal at best. True, a rat got into my vessel at the Keeling Cocos Islands and another at Rodriguez, along with a centipede stowed away in the hold, but one of them I drove out of the ship and the other I caught. This is how it was. For the first one, with infinite pains, I made a trap, looking to its capture and destruction. But the wily rodent, not to be deluded, took the hint and got ashore the day the thing was completed. It is, according to tradition, a most reassuring sign to find rats coming to a ship, and I had a mind to abide the knowing one of Rodriguez. But a breach of discipline decided the matter against him. While I slept one night, my ship sailing on, he undertook to walk over me, beginning at the crown of my head. Before his impertinence had even got him to my nose, I cried, Rat! Had him by the tail and threw him out of the companionway into the sea. As for the centipede, I was not aware of its presence till the wretched insect, all feet and venom, beginning like the rat, at my head, wakened me by a sharp bite on the scalp. This also was more than I could tolerate. After a few applications of kerosene, the poisonous bite, painful at first, gave me no further inconvenience. From this on, for a time, no living thing disturbed my solitude. No insect even was present in my vessel, except the spider and his wife from Boston, now with a family of young spiders. Nothing, I say, till sailing down the last stretch of the Indian Ocean, where mosquitoes came by hundreds from rainwater poured out of the heavens. Similarly, a barrel of rainwater stood on deck five days, I think in the sun, when music began. I knew the sound at once. It was the same as heard from Alaska to New Orleans. Again, at Cape Town, while dining out one day, I was taken with the song of a cricket, and Mr. Branscombe, my host, volunteered to capture a pair of them for me. They were sent on board next day in a box labelled Pluto and Scamp. Stowing them away in the binnacle in their own snug box, I left them there without food till I got to sea a few days. I'd never heard of a cricket eating anything. It seems that Pluto was a cannibal, for only the wings of poor Scamp were visible when I opened the lid, and they lay broken on the floor of the prison box. Even with Pluto, it had gone hard, for he lay on his back, stark and stiff, never to chirrup again. Ascension Island, where the goat was marooned, is called the Stone Frigate, RN, and is rated tender to the South African squadron. It lies at 7 degrees 55 minutes south latitude and 14 degrees 25 minutes west longitude, being in the very heart of the southeast trade winds and about 840 miles from the coast of Liberia. 
It is a mass of volcanic matter thrown up from the bed of the ocean to the height of 2,818 feet at the highest point above sea level. It is a strategic point and belonged to Great Britain before it got cold. In the limited but rich soil at the top of the island among the clouds, vegetation has taken root and a little scientific farming is carried on under the supervision of a gentleman from Canada. Also a few cattle and sheep are pastured there for the garrison mess. Water storage is made on a large scale. In a word, this heap of cinders and lava rock is stored and fortified and would stand a siege. Very soon after the spray arrived, I received a note from the Captain Blacksland, the commander of the island, conveying his thanks for the royal mail brought from St. Helena and inviting me to luncheon with him and his wife and sister at headquarters not far away. It is hardly necessary to say that I availed myself of the captain's hospitality at once. A carriage was waiting at the jetty when I landed, and a sailor with a broad grin led the horse carefully up the hill to the captain's house, as if I were a lord of the Admiralty, as if I were a lord of the Admiralty and a governor besides. And he led it as carefully down again when I returned. On the following day, I visited the summit among the clouds, and the same team being provided, and the same old sailor leading the horse. There was probably not a man on the island at that moment better able to walk than I. The sailor knew that. I finally suggested that we change places. Let me take the bridle, I said, and keep the horse from bolting. Great stone frigate, he exclaimed as he burst into a laugh. This here horse wouldn't bolt no faster than a turtle. If I didn't tow him hard, we'd never get into port. I walked most of the way over the steep grades and whereupon my guide, every inch a sailor, became my friend. Arriving at the summit of the island, I met Mr. Shank, the farmer from Canada and his sister, living very cosily in the house among the rocks, as snug as conies and as safe. He showed me over the farm, taking me through a tunnel which led from one field to the other, divided by an inaccessible spur of mountain. Mr. Shank said that he had lost many cows and bullocks, as well as sheep from breakneck over the steep cliffs and precipices. One cow, he said, would sometimes hook another right over a precipice to destruction and go on feeding unconcernedly. It seemed that the animals on this island farm, like mankind in the wide world, found it all too small. On the 26th of April, while I was ashore, rollers came in which rendered launching a boat impossible. However, the sloop being secured, moored to a buoy in deep water outside of all breakers, she was safe, while I, in the best of quarters, listened to well-told stories among the officers of the stone frigate. On the evening of the 29th, the sea having gone down, I went on board and made preparations to start again on my voyage early next day. The boatswain of the island and his crew giving me a hearty handshake as I embarked at the jetty. For reasons of scientific interest, I invited in mid-ocean the most thorough investigation concerning the crew list of the spray. Very few had challenged it and perhaps few ever will do so henceforth, but for the benefit of the few that may, I wish to clench beyond doubt the fact that it was not at all necessary in the expedition of a sloop around the world to have more than one man for the crew, all told, and that the spray sailed with only one person on board. And so, by appointment, Lieutenant Eagles, the executive officer in the morning, just as I was ready to sail, fumigated the sloop, rendering it impossible for a person to live concealed below, and proving that only one person was on board when she arrived. A certificate to this effect, besides the official documents from the many consulates, health offices and custom houses, 
will seem to many superfluous, for this story of the voyage may find its way into hands unfamiliar with the business of these offices of their ways of seeing that a vessel's papers and, above all, her bills of health are in order. The lieutenant's certificate being made out, the spray, nothing loath, now filled away clear of the sea-beaten rocks, and the trade winds, coming comfortably and cool and bracing, sent her flying along on her course. On May 8th, 1898, she crossed the track homeward bound that she made October 2nd, 1895 on the voyage out. She passed Fernando de Norona at night, going some miles south of it, and so I did not see the island. I felt a contentment in knowing that the spray had encircled the globe, and even as an adventure alone, I was in no way discouraged as to its utility, and said to myself, let what will happen. The voyage is now on record. A period was made. Chapter 20 On May 10th, there was a great change in the condition of the sea. There could be no doubt in my longitude now, if any had before existed in my mind. Strange and long-forgotten current ripples patted against the sloop sides in grateful music. The tune arrested the car, and I sat quietly listening to it while the spray kept on her course. By these current ripples, I was assured that she was now off St. Roque, and had struck the current which sweeps around that cape. The trade winds, we old sailors say, produce this current, which, in its course from this point forward, is governed by the coastline of Brazil, Guiana, Venezuela, and as some would say, by the Monroe Doctrine. The trades had been blowing fresh for some time, and the current, now at its height, amounted to 40 miles a day. This, added to the sloops run by the log, made the handsome day's work of 180 miles on several consecutive days. I saw nothing of the coast of Brazil, though I was not many leagues off, and was always in the Brazil current. I did not know that war with Spain had been declared, and that I might be liable right there to meet the enemy and be captured. Many had told me at Cape Town that, in their opinion, war was inevitable, and they said, the Spaniard will get you, the Spaniard will get you. To all this I could only say that, even so, he would not get much. Even in the fever heat over the disaster to the main, I did not think there would be war. But I am no politician. Indeed, I had hardly given the matter a serious thought when, on the 14th of May, just north of the equator and near the longitude of the River Amazon, I saw first a mast with the stars and stripes floating from it, rising astern as if poked up out of the sea, and then rapidly appearing on the horizon like a citadel, the Oregon. As she came near, I saw that the great ship was flying the signals CBT, which read, Are there any men of war about? Right under these flags, and larger than the spray's mainsail, so it appeared, was the yellowest Spanish flag I ever saw. It gave me nightmare some time after when I reflected on it in my dreams. I did not make out the Oregon signals till she passed ahead, where I could read them better, for she was two miles away and I had no binoculars. When I had read her flags, I hoisted the signal, no, for I had not seen any Spanish man of war. I had not been looking for any. My final signal, let us keep together for mutual protection, Captain Clark did not seem to regard as necessary. Perhaps my small flags were not made out. Anyhow, the Oregon steamed on with a rush, looking for Spanish men of war, as I learned afterward. The Oregon's great flag was dipped beautifully three times to the spray's lowered flag as she passed on. 
Both had crossed the line only a few hours before. I pondered long that night over the probability of a war risk now coming upon the spray after she had cleared all, or nearly all, the dangers of the sea. But finally, a strong hope mastered my fears. On the 17th of May, the spray, coming out of storm at daylight, made Devil's Island, two points on the lee bow, not far off. The wind was still blowing a stiff breeze on shore. I could clearly see the dark grey buildings on the island as the sloop brought it abeam. No flag or sign of life was seen on that dreary place. Later in the day, a French bark on the port tack, making for Cayenne, hove in sight close hauled on the wind. She was falling to leeward fast. The spray was also close hauled and was lugging on sail to secure an offing on the starboard tack, a heavy swell in the night having thrown her too near the shore, and now I considered the matter of supplicating a change of wind. I had already enjoyed my share of favouring breezes over the great oceans, and I asked myself if it would be right to have the wind turned now all into my sails while the Frenchman was bound the other way. A head current which he stemmed together with a scant wind was bad enough for him, and so I could only say in my heart, Lord, let matters stand as they are, but do not help the Frenchman any more just now, for what would suit him well would ruin me. I remembered that when I was a lad I heard a captain often say in meeting that in answer to a prayer of his own wind changed from northeast to northwest entirely to his satisfaction. He was a good man, but did this glorify the architect, the ruler of the winds and the waves? Moreover, it was not a trade wind, as I remember, that changed for him, but one of the variables which will change whenever you ask, if you ask long enough. Again, this man's brother maybe was not bound the opposite way, well content with a fair wind himself, which made all the difference in the world. Author's Note The Bishop of Melbourne, commend me to his teachings, refused to set aside a day of prayer for rain, recommending his people to husband water when the rainy season was on. In like manner, a navigator husbands the wind, keeping a weather gauge where practicable. May 18th 1898 is written large in the Spray's logbook. Tonight, in latitude 7 degrees 13 minutes north, for the first time in nearly three years, I see the North Star. The Spray, on the day following, logged 147 miles. To this, I add 35 miles for current sweeping her onward. On the 20th of May, about sunset, the island of Tobago off the Orinoco came into view, bearing west by north, distant 22 miles. The spray was drawing rapidly toward her home destination. Later at night, while running freer along the coast of Tobago, the wind still blowing fresh, I was startled by the sudden flash of breakers on the port bow and not far off. I luffed instantly offshore and then tacked, heading in for the island. Finding myself shortly after close in with the land, I tacked again offshore, but without much altering the bearings of the danger. Sail, whichever way I would, it seemed clear that if the sloop weathered the rocks at all, it would be a close shave, and I watched with anxiety while beating against the current, always losing ground. So the matter stood hour after hour while I watched the flashes of light thrown up as regularly as the beats of the long ocean swells, and always there seemed just a little nearer. It was evidently a coral reef, of this I had not the slightest doubt, and a bad reef at that. Worse still, there might be other reefs ahead forming a bite into which the current would sweep me and where I should be hemmed in and finally wrecked. 
I had not sailed these waters since a lad and lamented the day I had allowed on board the goat that ate my chart. I taxed my memory of sea law, of wrecks on sunken reefs and of pirates harboured among coral reefs where other ships might not come. But nothing that I could think of applied to the island of Tobago save the one wreck of Robinson Crusoe's ship in the fiction and that gave me little information about reefs. I remembered only that in Crusoe's case he kept his powder dry. But there she booms again, I cried, and how close the flash is now. Almost aboard was that last breaker. But you'll go by, spray, old girl. Tis a beam now. One surge more, and oh, one more like that will clear your ribs and keel. And I slapped her on the transom, proud of her last noble effort to keep clear of the danger, when a wave greater than the rest threw her higher than before, and behold, from the crest of it was revealed at once all there was of the reef. I fell back in a coil of rope, speechless and amazed, not distressed, but rejoiced. Aladdin's lamp, my fisherman's own lantern, it was the great revolving light on the island of Trinidad, 30 miles away, throwing flashes over the waves, which had deceived me. The orb of the light was now dipping on the horizon, and how glorious was the sight of it. But dear father Neptune, as I live after a long life at sea and much among corals, I would have made a solemn declaration to that reef. Through all the rest of the night, I saw imaginary reefs, and not knowing what moment the sloop might fetch up on a real one, I tacked off and on till daylight, as nearly as possible in the same track, all for the want of a chart. I could have nailed the St. Helena goat's pelt to the deck. My course was now for Grenada, to which I carried letters from Mauritius. About midnight of the 22nd day of May, I arrived at the island and cast anchor in the roads off the town of St. George, entering the inner harbour at daylight on the morning of the 23rd day, which made 42 days sailing from the Cape of Good Hope. It was a good run, and I doffed my cap again to the pilot of the Pinta. Lady Bruce, in a note to the spray at Port Louis, said Grenada was a lovely island, and she wished the sloop might call there on the voyage home. When the spray arrived, I found that she had been fully expected. How so? I asked. Oh, we heard that you were at Mauritius, they said, and from Mauritius, after meeting Sir Charles Bruce, our old governor, we knew you would come to Grenada. This was a charming introduction, and it brought me in contact with people worth knowing. The spray sailed from Grenada on the 28th of May and coasted along under the lee of the Antilles, arriving at the island of Dominica on the 30th, where... For the want of knowing better, I cast anchor at the quarantine ground, for I was still without a charter of the islands, not having been able to get one even at Grenada. Here I not only met with further disappointment in the matter, but was threatened with a fine for the mistake I had made in the anchorage. There were no ships either at the quarantine or at the commercial roads, and I could not see that it made much difference where I anchored. But a chap, a sort of deputy harbour master coming along, thought it did, and he offered me to shift to the other anchorage, which, in truth, I had already investigated and did not like because of the heavier roll there from the sea. And so instead of springing to the sails at once to shift, I said I would leave outright as soon as I could procure a chart, which I begged he would send and get for me. But I say you must move before you get anything at all, he insisted, and raising his voice so that all the people along shore could hear him, he added, And just now... And then he flew into a towering passion when they on shore snickered to see the crew of the spray sitting calmly by the bulwark instead of hoisting sails. I tell you, dis in quarantine, he shouted very much louder than before. That's all right, General, I replied. 
I want to be quarantined anyhow. That's right, boss. Someone on the beach cried, that's right, you get quarantined, while others shouted to the deputy to make him move along out of there. They were all equally divided on the island for and against me. The man who had made such fuss over the matter gave it up when he found that I wished to be quarantined and sent for an all-important official who soon came alongside, starched from clue to earring. He stood in the boat as straight up and down as a fathom of pump water, a marvel of importance. Charts, I cried I, as soon as his shirt collar appeared over the sloop's rail. Have you any charts? No, sir, he replied with much stiffened dignity. No, sir, charts don't grow on this island. Not doubting the information, I tripped an anchor immediately, as I had intended to do from the first, and made all sail for St. John, Antigua, where I arrived on the 1st of June, having sailed with great caution in mid-channel all the way. The spray, always in good company, now fell in with the port officer's steam launch at the harbour entrance, having on board Sir Francis Fleming, governor of the Leeward Islands, who, to the delight of all hands, gave the officer in charge instructions to tow my ship into port. On the following day, His Excellency and Lady Fleming, along with Captain Burr, Royal Navy, paid me a visit. The courthouse was tendered free to me at Antigua, as was done also at Grenada, and at each place a highly intelligent audience filled the hall to listen to a talk about the seas the spray had crossed and the countries she had visited. Well, that's the end of the chapters for this episode. Now we've been slowly making our way through this book for pretty much a year. I've been... Uh, layering it into the other podcasts I've been doing and the response from it has been very very good people really enjoy hearing these kind of stories so based on that I started a new podcast called Rare Nautical Reads um, you can find it anywhere that you'd find a, this podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google uh, anywhere that you normally pick up your podcasts um, and we're already getting going pretty nicely with that there's 15 episodes already out and uh, the concept is right there in the title it's unusual books which uh, you probably won't have heard of before. Certainly I'm picking ones that I've never heard of, and I'm just reading them. We're not going to have the comments at the end, which we've had with this uh, Slocum rendition, which I really enjoy doing that all the way through, but you'll appreciate that it means that there's a lot more to making the podcast when you have to um, give your thoughts on the book as well as reading the book. So in the interest of getting the books to you as quickly as possible, we're going to forego the narration and the ideas at the end of the book. What I'll do is I'll do a synopsis of the book when I've got to the end of it and I'll put it onto the main podcast here. And then if you want to go and listen to it, you know that all the chapters are already uploaded. I know that some of you are commuting. Um, I heard from a chat the other day who's a pilot who listens to the podcast regularly and while he's waiting to deadhead back to wherever on aeroplanes, he's listening to the Rare Nautical Reads podcast now. But uh, the main thing is for me to be able to chew my way through the books. Um, I'm not sure what you think of my uh, reading style. I'm happy to take uh, feedback from professionals and non-professionals alike, um, but I've only got one voice, so be kind. But um, I love reading the books, and I think because I know about sailing, it's easier for me to kind of um, understand what the author is, uh, is, is going for and then kind of read it properly. I think sometimes when sailing books are read by great narrators they might not necessarily know about sailing and the, the jargon kind of sounds funny in their mouth so that's the concept rare nautical reads um i would put a a call out this podcast goes out to thousands of people so i'd say if anybody has knowledge of how to um, get copyright on older books i understand 
Here in Canada, once the author has been dead by 50 years, then it's in the public domain. Elsewhere, it's more like 70. I've heard 78 years. But some books, you know, published in 1948, and like the book we've just looked at now, um, Desperate Voyage, the author died in 1998. Somebody somewhere must be holding that copyright. So if anybody has knowledge on how to access the copyright on very uh, kind of obscure books, I'd love to hear from you because, of course, we want to make sure that everything we're doing is above board. But yeah, that book that we've just looked at, Desperate Voyage, um, absolutely brilliant. 25 chapters, I think it's 12 or 13 episodes over on Rare Nautical Reads. And uh, what an incredible voyage. He sets out um, from the Americas, basically trying to get back to his wife who's in Sydney. It's just after the Second World War. There's no shipping. There's no shipping schedule. It's just impossible for him to find his passage back to Australia. So he comes up with his harebrained plan to um, buy a 29-foot yacht and then sail it across the Pacific, which you know sounds maybe vaguely reasonable to us. One little problem, he doesn't know anything at all about sailing. So he ends up in... I've got to tell you, reading it, I, I there was a lot of editing because I had every every paragraph. I was like, no way. This he ends up with a shark on board that then like comes back to life when he thinks he killed it and destroys most of his boat. He ends up on his beam ends on reefs. I think more often than the boats upright. It is an incredible story and uh, told blow by blow by the by the author by John Caldwell and uh, a really really good read and we've just now started another book which is called Vagabonding Under Sail. Both of these books published around the late uh, 40s early 50s and this is for young chaps heading out uh, on a dream voyage just after the Second World War but properly organized. They kind of know what they're doing, they've kind of got a plan but they've got a lovely style of writing and it's uh, it's been a heap of fun already. I've just got chapter seven in front of me here I'm about to record and it's available everywhere that podcasts normally are and I say we've already got two books going on there. We've finished one already called Desperate Voyage and the other one, Vagabonding Under Sail. We're on chapter seven and I'm hoping to get uh, through these books at quite the clip. It's relatively easy for me to uh, to read them and to upload them because there's not all that extra editing. And that should mean that we can have a nice, reliable product basically for you to be able to consume and enjoy it's no good is it having a a book that you have to wait for those days of waiting till next week same time same channel that's all gone what we want now of course is to be able to start and finish all in one night like watching game of thrones or walking dead or something like that so um that's what we've got going on there on rare nautical reads i hope you enjoy and what i'm just inviting people to do is um, go over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner and just sign up for that five dollars a month donation which should keep all the wheels uh, greased at the moment with the two weeks i've already spent doing this it's about 20 hours a week spent uh, recording and editing and uploading and writing the descriptions for the rare nautical reads podcast um, just five dollars if you're consuming the content of this air makes a huge difference and represents literally you know a dime an episode something like that so that's all from this uh, episode of uh, Slocum. We're into the last episode of Slocum uh, on the next one. And I will do a narration for the end of that just to bring the whole book together. Um, and I'll get that out probably just next week so that this is tied up and finished and we can get on to other things. But as always, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound. And I'll speak to you in the next one. Cheers. <laughs>